Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, and welcome to Grid Talk. Today, we have Matt Ketchke, Senior Vice President of Con Ed, who's in charge of consumer so- uh, solutions, infrastructure planning, and energy efficiency at the major utilities serving New York City and surrounding area. Welcome, Matt. How are you today? I'm great. Great to be here. Thanks. We want to talk uh, first off about where you see the grid going in New York City um, in light of the fact that you're halfway through a massive smart meter installation with 3 million meters installed. You have to have one of the largest fleets of smart meters in the country. How is that working and what is that enabling you to do? So yeah, we are uh, about halfway through our smart meter deployment. Um, it is in total, we're gonna deploy over 4 million smart meters across our service territory in New York City, Westchester County, Orange and Rockland counties, and then a little piece of Bergen County in the state of New Jersey. Um, that smart meter deployment is going really well so far. Um, it is the largest project uh, that Con Ed has ever undertaken. So we're gonna spend well over a billion dollars deploying these smart meters. Um, and what that's going to do is give us the ability to really get back to the individual customer level and see how those customers are using energy. I imagine this has been a rollout over several years. Um, what capacity have you already uh, uh, gleaned and, and what kind of low-hanging fruit have you been able to, to, to grab? Yeah, so we have. We've been at this for a few years. Um, and you know, we've been able to really unlock the ability to get very granular information about what's going on with a customer's energy use. So one of the good examples um, is we provide energy to the subway system for the city of New York. And and that is um, both the power that moves the trains and all the power for signals and station lighting and ventilation at stations. Um, If you think about that, that's a little different than the kind of service we might provide to a normal home or business. So normal home or business, you provide electric service to them, and if the power goes out, usually there's somebody there who can let you know right away, and we can respond. But for things like signal power for the subways, um, you know, those meters are typically located deep inside um, the subway system, um, and then if the power goes out, you don't necessarily know right away, is the power out to the signals because of something that happened on the Con Ed system, or is the power out because of something that's happened with the MTA's signal system, but all you know is that the signals aren't working at that very moment in time, and all of a sudden the trains can't run the way they normally would. So we've used um, what we have in the AMI system or the power of the AMI system to really see what's going on specifically at that customer's premises um, to be able to monitor over 2,000 points on the MTA system to see if we have an interruption to um, the electric signals at the MTA. Is it something that happened upstream on the content energy delivery system, or is it something that's happened um, downstream beyond the meter and then get the right people dispatched right away to help the trains run smoother? This has got to be a great enhancement to reliability and security in terms of uh, monitoring the health of the system. Absolutely. It, it really helps us be much more accurate in how we're monitoring the system. We can monitor the system in real time 
And we have had cases where we know, even before the MTA knows, that something's gone on with one of their signals and get crews rolling right away to get it restored. So it's helped us operate the system more safely and improve the customer experience for everybody who rides the subway. What about the potential for bi-directional energy flow uh, with customers? Does the deployment of smart meters help you get into a much more nuanced re- relationship and management of each particular customer? Absolutely. So one of the things that smart meters let you do is in near real time monitor what's going on with customers' energy usage and increasingly with the the advent of things like distributed energy resources or customer-sided generation, things like solar panels on the roofs or um, storage or combined heat and power, where now you're seeing energy flowing bi-directionally from customers or customers at some points may be consuming energy and at some points may be exporting energy. And the smart meters allow us to see that. What's the practical impact of that as we fly into LaGuardia in coming years? Are we going to see more rooftop solar on, on rooftops in New York City? Absolutely. You're going to see more rooftop solar. You're going to see one thing you, you won't necessarily see because inside the building is things that are combined heat and power where they use the heat that is um, used to heat the building and make hot water in the building is also used to make electricity. Um, battery systems that will be going on the roofs or in parking lots of buildings. Um, all of those distributed energy resources essentially use the grid um, to have energy flow bidirectionally. And bidirectional energy really does change how the system works. One of the analogies I could use is it's a lot like traffic. So the energy system was originally designed much like a highway for one-way energy flow from the power plant all the way out to the customer. Now, with a lot of distributed energy resources, you need bidirectional energy flow. The way our systems work, it's going to look a lot more like Crosstown traffic in midtown Manhattan, where you need the traffic signals to make sure that everything continues to flow smoothly. Are you already seeing an uptick in distributed generation in the Colonnade territory? We are. It, it actually has been um, pretty much doubling almost every year in the last several years. Um, we look at the amount of both solar, combined heat and power, or CHP, and then battery systems that are on our system. This might be a good point to introduce or, or ask you about the process that those of us that follow, have been following the industry in New York and uh, monitoring the REV development, which was launched in 2014. How has that evolved and how has that affected the nuts and bolts of Con Ed operations and uh, infrastructure deployment? So REV was launched in 2014. It um, basically was a, a look by state policymakers at how the utility business model would function. Um, and then how utilities can look at things like distributor energy resources to optimize how we design, plan, and operate our energy delivery systems. So one of the outcomes of REV was the development of a process to think about non-wires alternatives. Essentially, how can we think of all of these distributed energy resources and flexible load um, on the side of the customer or the customer's ability essentially to dispatch their energy use at different times of day to take advantage of when the grid has capacity? All of those things um, to put together a portfolio of, of resources, distributed energy resources, flexible load resources, energy efficiency resources, to eliminate or defer the need for capital investment for new infrastructure. Um, and that, that's a process that is now integrated into how we think about planning our energy delivery systems. We think about non-wire solutions as part of how we will overall meet the energy and energy delivery demands of our customers. A lot of the infrastructure deployments that you've been making, I would assume, are um, logical extensions of your business. Uh, 
can you separate out to what extent you'd be doing what you're doing absent rev versus how rev is uh, spurred you in a, a particular direction? Yeah. So I think one of the things that rev did was really spur us to look um, not only at the traditional utility infrastructure investments that you would make, but then how do we look behind the customer's meter to think of the customer um, as a potential resource to solve a constraint. So, um, you know, we still have the traditional role of the utility system planner who thinks about utility infrastructure, but now that toolbox has been expanded to include those behind the meter resources that the customer may own and can dispatch in and get paid for dispatching those into the system to solve for a grid constraint in a way that's more cost effective and reliable. For example, time of day rates, has that played a role or do you see it playing a role in, in your service territory? So time of use rates, we are we have a limited use of time of use rates in New York at this point. Um, I think they've been more heavily deployed in places like California. Um, but we are piloting some new pilot rates, We're actually piloting six new pilot rates, um, which target how customers utilize the system um, to incentivize them to use both off-peak and to levelize their usage to the largest degree possible to optimize the delivery system and to minimize the customer's impact on kind of coincident peak um, and to essentially pay them to do that. What about net metering? Is that a factor in your territory? Net metering, we definitely have net metering. Um, the state has been working through a process um, that they term the value of distributed energy resources, the value of uh, DER, sometimes called beer. Um, in that process, we're looking to work together with stakeholders and the state regulator to find a successor tariff for net metering that will be more reflective of the actual cost to build a delivery system and the value that distributed energy resources bring. As you look at it over the, the vast Con Ed service territory in New York City, do you find these new sweeping changes, are, are they primarily going to affect major property owners, build large buildings? Will it be individual consumers? Will it be um, businesses? How do you see this being embraced by various constituencies? There are definitely different groups of stakeholders that will be involved in different ways. So, for example, if I think of my average in-city residential customer, they actually have a relatively small footprint. So a typical in-city New York City customer uses about 300 kilowatt hours a month and has a typical bill of around $85 a month. Um, so for them, you know, most cases they don't have either the ability to or necessarily the economic incentive to make radical changes in how they're using energy. Um, but those are customers who we see a lot of engagement around energy efficiency in, in the context of how do you use energy efficient appliances or make more energy efficient choices or think about you know, using a smart thermostat to optimize some of their dispatch of energy. And a lot of our customers are interested in that both for the, the value, the economic value, and for the carbon reduction um, value of, of making those decisions. Then that ranges all the way up to the largest commercial customers. These are large commercial property owners um, and how they think about doing large projects that may include distributed generation, storage projects, um, coupled with energy efficiency to lower the overall demands on large commercial or multi-tenant residential spaces. So, and you see more activity there and more engagement at that level? We think of this as kind of all across the different channels. Um, there's definitely a lot of activity that's going to go on at the larger commercial building space. 
Um, actually, in New York City, a local law was passed that requires buildings to look at their kind of their energy profile and how they can become more energy efficient. So there's definitely a lot of activity in that space and thinking about um, how to help large commercial property owners do those things. Let's talk about battery storage for a second. Um, I understand you have an RFP for 300 megawatts of storage. Um, that is, doesn't sound like a lot, but considering that my reading of e federal figures, there were just 900 megawatts installed nationwide as of last spring. Uh, that's a significant hunk of storage. How, what's the timetable for bringing that on and what capabilities do you see that giving your company and your customers? We have a solicitation out for bulk storage for 300 megawatts. And one thing to think about when you think about storage is storage is both um, has the energy value or you know, 300 megawatts, but then also it's time duration. So how many megawatt hours would that be? In the case of our solicitation, we were looking for a four hour storage product. So um, 300 megawatts would also be 1,200 megawatt hours. Um, and in that, that would be one of the largest storage solicitations um, out right now nationally. It would really move the total amount of storage installed, move New York up pretty far in states that have energy storage deployed. Um, but it is still a relatively small percentage of the state's overall goal of achieving 3,000 megawatts of storage over the next several years. Are they small-scale units? Are there large substation-scale units or a combination of both? Our solicitation actually um, looked for either large, essentially substation-level projects um, or more like medium-size grid-connected or distribution-connected projects. And we solicited, we said developers could propose either or both. Um, this solicitation didn't target kind of the smaller systems that would be behind a customer meters, things like Tesla power walls that are really um, geared more towards the residential or small commercial space. So these would be large industrial size systems. Um, we're not through the entire solicitation and, and contracting process, but I would envision them to be you know, systems that could be 70 or 80 megawatts worth of capacity with a four hour duration. Talk a little bit about what the practical impact of that will be. Will, will the main value be f to allow more um, nuanced control of the grid and, and management of the peak hours? Will it be able to come back fast from an outage caused by factors outside your control? How do you see it helping you and uh, early on and maybe down the road? So I think one of the big things is um, storage is going to be one component in how we think about decarbonization, the increased penetration of renewable resources on our overall energy supply mix. I say one component because it's, it is one piece of what we really need to think about in the longer term of how we balance out our supply as we move away from predominantly generation, which is, is based on dispatchable resources, whether those are dispatchable hydro, nuclear or fossil fuel into a place where more and more of the supply is being made up by renewable resources, which would be non-dispatchable, things like solar and wind, which are only available when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. So one of the things we're going to have to do as an industry is work on how we balance these intermittent resources um, with customers' demand, and, and batteries are definitely going to be one piece of that. The ability to kind of bank and store energy so that you can buffer 
um, both short duration events, things like if you are having a lot of solar on your system and cloud cover rolls through and the solar drops off, how do you buffer that for you know minutes or shorter duration at a time? Up through, how do we think about buffering through long duration events like peak loads in the summer or winter time when you have maximum cooling or heating, uh, maybe the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. How do you think about moving energy seasonally between spring and fall when there may be overproduction to winter and summer when there's more demand? And batteries are one piece of that. So what's the, the scale of renewable generation currently from wind and solar in New York? And how fast do you see that ramping up as this battery storage comes online? Today, um, renewables are a relatively small piece of the overall New York State portfolio, um, but the state has goals of getting to you know 100% decarbonization of the electric production sector by 2040. Um, we're looking at a, a state goal of 9,000 megawatts of offshore wind coming in here by by 2030. So that those are very fast ramp ups in how quickly we're going to see the renewable penetration coming in. Um, so even where today it, it's not the majority of the resource in the state, we're still driven by hydro and nuclear being our, our predominant non-carbon emitting resources and then natural gas being the, the biggest piece of the supply mix that comes from carbon emitting resources. Um, as we move forward with more and more wind and solar, there's going to be a need to balance those resources out um, storage being one piece of how we do that. That 9,000 megawatts of offshore wind, is that destined for New York City or the whole region? Or So it, it's you know, New York State, as many um, regions of the country, New York State operates as a regional transmission system with the New York State independent system operator. And they do we do have flows. Typically, the flows come from the north, from the hydro and nuclear units that are in the northern part of the state, down toward the population centers in the southern parts of the state. Most of this offshore wind, if not all of it, will be located off of New York City and Long Island. So you're going to see injections here now at the southern part of the state. Um, and some of the modeling indicates as you get to those deeper penetrations of offshore wind, you may see periods where the, the transmission flows of energy actually reverse. And as opposed to flowing from north to south, we may see times when offshore wind production is high enough that it actually exceeds the the load in the New York City area and, and Long Island and reverses and begins to flow up towards upstate New York. How, um, turning to EVs for a second, how um, has been the acceptance of EVs in New York compared to other parts of the country? And, and what kind of efforts are you mounting to help charge those cars and trucks and buses? I would say the, the leading state in electric vehicles, at least at this point, has definitely been California. California has been at the leading edge of that, but New York is not necessarily far behind. Um, the state has put forward an effort really first to incentivize the adoption of EVs by deploying electric charging. So um, the New York Power Authority and state of New York has worked to develop essentially a charging corridor that runs the major highways through New York so that EV owners who are looking to travel have place along the major corridors, um, highway corridors to charge. Um, for us in New York City and the New York City area, <clears throat> we've been working with customers um, to facilitate adoption both by helping charge providers to deploy charging infrastructure. So working with the New York City Department of Transportation to install 100 curbside charges around New York City. Um, and then also to send pricing incentives for customers who own EVs to charge in the off hours. So we have a program called Smart Charge 
Um, and that gives customers an incentive to charge their electric vehicles off hours. So how many EVs are there in New York City right now? Um, I apologize. I had that number, and now I do not have it in front of me with the total number of EVs. Without the actual number, I mean, is it significant or, or is it still microscopic? It, it, so right now, um, each, each year, um, so three years ago, it was about one half of 1% of all sales. This year, it, last year it went to one. This year it's closer to two. So each year we're seeing a, a doubling of the sales of EVs. Um, and by county, the New York City metropolitan area now has more electric vehicle registrations than the county in New York State. So we're definitely seeing an uptick in the adoption. And also more manufacturers have more vehicles readily available as part of what they're rolling out and selling. One problem I would imagine uh, uh, is being a fairly dense, densely populated area with a lot of apartment buildings. Um, people park on the streets. Is Con Ed looking at solutions to helping customers that might not have a parking garage to charge their EVs? Yeah, we are. So uh, two ways to really think about that problem. One is curbside charging. Uh, can we deploy charging in a way at the curbside that will give customers access to charging infrastructure if they street park? And we've been working with the New York State Department of Transportation um, to locate 100 chargers in curbside spots that would be publicly accessible to people essentially when they park. One of the advantages of those is because they're curbside and they're associated with parking, they don't have to have the kind of high energy value that fast chargers would have. So these can be slower, less uh, delivery infrastructure necessary to provide that kind of charging. The second way we're working is working on fast charging. And these would look and feel a whole lot more like a gas station, someplace you can pull in and use a high energy charger to charge your vehicle quickly. Um, typically 20 to 30 minutes, you can pick up a significant charge to extend your range. Um, so we've been working with the city to deploy several fast chargers around the city first, um, using some of our own Con Ed property with third-party charge providers who can install the infrastructure. What about your, your bus fleet? Are there plans to electrify that? There are. So the New York City um, Metropolitan Transit Authority is looking to electrify their fleet. They have a goal of electrifying um, all of their fleet by 2030. Um, and today they operate around 5,000 buses. So that is a large uh, fleet. It's actually the largest fleets of buses um, operated by any transit operator in the United States. Um, so far, they've worked on some pilots. So they've, tra they've electrified portions of the line that runs, um, it's called the M42 bus line, runs along 42nd Street, um, and portions of the M14 bus line that runs along 14th Street. They've electrified both of those with electric buses. Um, and we've been working with them on how do they think about their need for infrastructure as they begin to build out their bus depots and move from diesel or natural gas fueled buses or hybrid buses into all electric buses. Having lived in New York City um, and familiar with the, the extensive bus traffic as well as delivery vehicles out into the boroughs, as you move towards decarbonization and electrification of everything, that's going to put an enormous infrastructure challenge, I think, on Con Ed. Um, how, talk from the 30,000 foot level of, of where your business is headed and where the New York City grid is headed as electricity really gets to play a more and more sizable role in your local infrastructure. One of the, one of the things we do spend a lot of time thinking about is as we move <clears throat> away from final end use energy being 
driven by carbon emitting resources. And if I think about that, that's things like liquid fuels, gasoline, diesel, um, for both transportation and heating. And we move towards electricity being how you customers are, are the final use of the end use of energy. Um, we will see an increase in overall electric demand. Now, one thing is that there's the overall electric demand and there's what is the coincidence of that demand or all these different uses, how many of them uh, occur coincident with where our peak energy use is today. So our, today, our peak energy use happens to be around the hottest days of the year. Um, so for some of these applications, you can see the ability to do a lot of electrification and not necessarily have it immediately cause um, the need for system reinforcement. So things like heating, well, you can move buildings uh, off of oil heating onto electric heating, um, and that doesn't necessarily, at least the beginnings of that, cause the need for increased infrastructure because it's not coincident with um, what your peak is today and how your system is built up for size because that's for the hottest summer day. Um, but we are thoughtful that over time, you will likely need increased electric infrastructure as you move more and more of the final end use energy for consumer applications into electricity. Is it ever overwhelming or, or do you think you've got your hands around this and, and know exactly what you need to do? I don't think it's overwhelming. I do think it's something we have to be thoughtful and careful about in, in how we plan. Some of these applications happen quickly, uh, but some of them likely happen over time. So, you know, typically um, both the New York City Metropolitan Transit Authority and other transit operators, the typical lifespan of a, of a bus is about 13 years. Um, and they've only just begun to build buses into their fleet in the last year or two. So it, it will take them time to roll over their fleet. Similarly, if we think of electrification of heating, those aren't things that necessarily happen overnight. Um, typically, a, a system will get changed out about every 20 years. Um, so it's, you know, some of these things will happen and occur over time. Um, so I wouldn't put it in the category of overwhelming, but I would put it in the category of something that we are paying very close attention to and likely means that there will be continued need for investment in energy infrastructure and delivery infrastructure as we move into this decarbonization transition. It's a very different business. Um, I believe you came into Kaida back in the 1990s. Uh, it's a very different business now going forward than it's been. Talk a little bit about how how prepared you feel and your team is and, and what you're doing, what skill sets you're bringing in. Yeah, it is. I mean, things have changed a lot in in the 25 years that I've been doing this. Even just a few years ago, um, I think you and I may have talked about this over time, there was a lot of discussion of the utility death spiral that, you know, util electric companies in particular were seeing decreasing volumetric sales and the whole business model was in this death spiral. You know, that's something that we don't even, we don't hear anymore as now we're talking about decarbonization and electric being the driver behind decarbonization. So I don't try to predict the future necessarily because I think that it, it is subject to so much change. But what is clear to me at this point and where we are is that if and as our region and nation want to move towards decarbonization, you know, the electric system is critical to help make that happen. Um, and that you will need a viable business model for the electric utilities and folks who are responsible for providing that infrastructure to go out and do it. Um, I think we're, we're 
we're at that point in New York. I think the New York state regulators have been really looked at how the business model evolves, how to incentivize utilities to achieve on state policies like decarbonization and, and how to make sure that's sustainable. Fascinating. Thank you, Matt. Great. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Grid Talk. We've been talking quite in depth with Matt Keschke, Senior Vice President of Con Edison, and we appreciate his insights of the changing electric grid. You have been listening to Grid Talk. If you like this podcast, please go to our site, smartgrid.gov, to subscribe, or you can visit your favorite podcast platform on your smartphone. If you have any feedback or questions, please direct them to gridtalk at nrel.gov. Thank you and have a nice day. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.